We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles, please. We'll read here tonight before I give the message following up. Uh, I think will be part three in our series of messages on Christian discipleship, or Christian disciples perhaps better. Second Chronicles and chapter 3. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared the threshing floor, prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits. There's some question as to, by the way, whether that cubit is 18 inches approximately or the royal cubit of 21 inches. And the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the height was 120. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. Now, I'm aware that that 120 uh, height measurement might to you, if you thought about it, seem quite extensive. That would be about 180 feet tall. Um, There's a textual variant there in the Hebrew text. So uh, we'd have to, uh, they they use some other manuscripts to figure out what the original reading was. And uh, it looks like the word cubit may have been misspelled by a letter or two, and that made it 120 instead of 20. But and regardless, we'll, we'll get to that uh, another time if we study it in more detail. The larger room, verse 5, the larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work on it. And he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was uh, gold from Parvayim. He also overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, its walls and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. Can you imagine how much gold that is? That is a tremendous amount of gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the room, and the other wing was five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub, and the wing of the other cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the room, and the other wing was also five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub. So you can imagine both arms outstretched, wall, touch the other one, the other one, you know, all the way to the other side uh, of the room. Uh, Verse number... Uh, Let's see, where did I leave off? 13, the wings of these cherubim spanned 20 cubits over all. They stood on their feet and they faced inward. 
And he made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and wove cherubim into it. Also, he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. That would give you a clue about the issue that I raised up earlier, that we're talking either a total of 35 or 40 cubits high for those pillars in the front. And he made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary and put them on the top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work. Then he set up uh, pillars, the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And he called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, and the name of the one on the left, Boaz. Special pillars if they have names, wouldn't you say? That's interesting, I think. Yes, so thus begins the construction of the temple and uh, the furnishings and so on. We'll have to see another time as we read. All right. Well, uh, the young people have, as I said, already made their quick and quiet escape. So we're here tonight to look at the matter of disciples of Jesus. Who are they? And uh, just to review, we've actually this would be uh, this would be the part three of the series. And uh, in Matthew 28, 20, we're reminded we're to make disciples of all the nations. So we asked ourselves, how are we doing that? What are we doing? What's the end product that we're making? Which serves to remind us of kind of two related things. One is, what what does God want to make us into? And what are we to do in the ministry of the church to help people progress in that proper direction? So for ourselves and for others. So we saw that that is our end product, and we want to be sure that we understand that carefully. We looked at some texts that talk about Jesus when he says, my disciple or my disciples in Luke's gospel, particularly chapter 14. And then we began to dig into all 250 verses in the New Testament that have to do with disciples. And uh, I selected many of them to call out in our study. We've gone through, I believe, 19 characteristics of disciples already. And I'm not going to go over all of those again. They are listed in the notes for you that are on the church website there if you want to look at those. But we move on to number 20 in my list, which is in Acts chapter 6. The Bible tells us that something is happening in the church there that we should pay attention to, and it's in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. There was a problem in the church because of its growth. We've often said those kind of problems are are the more desirable problems to have. You know, not the ones where people are, are uh, dissatisfied because of some doctrinal issue or some interpersonal problem or something like that, but a growth issue is a much better kind of problem to have. But in a healthy situation in a church, the number of disciples is increasing. It's increasing. So this really isn't kind of a characteristic of an individual disciple, but it is an important characteristic of a group of disciples that it's increasing And we need to pray that God will help us also, likewise, to increase and to make more disciples. Verse number 7, 
It says, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I guess it comes to mind to think of the initial uh, kind of onslaught of the gospel as kind of like uh, the pandemic. Uh, The initial year or two, there's lots of cases. In the initial time, there's a lot of believers that are made, and then it might seem to you like it slows to a crawl, and the number of cases uh, doesn't uh, multiply so rapidly. But we still should be uh, passing the bug on to others in the gospel message. And so we're supposed to be increasing in number. Also in Acts chapter 6, disciples select capable servants and leaders from among themselves to attend to specific needs in the church. And so in response to this need of a growing pain, the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, you know, look, we shouldn't be serving tables. It's not good for us to use our time doing that, but pick out from yourselves some others to take care of this uh, needful matter. And so they did. They selected, they, they, they knew among themselves who were leaders among us, who were servants among us, and they selected those out and in effect voted to have them be the deacons in that church situation. So they attended to those needs. Some of those disciples are the ones selected to meet the needs of the church. So the disciples select other disciples to serve the disciples, the followers of Christ among themselves, making those wise choices. Acts chapter 9 is our next characteristic, and that's in verse number 36. In Acts 9, 36, it says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, whose name is translated Dorcas. This woman was what? This is a characteristic of a disciple. She was full of good works, Acts 9, 36. Full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And this was one of the reasons why the sorrow of her passing was heightened because there were so many people touched by her good works. And so we take from this the characteristic that disciples are devoted to good works. We saw that in Titus, didn't we, when we studied the book, that we're supposed to be devoted to good works which are useful and uh, pleasing to God. So disciples are devoted to good works. Acts chapter 11, we haven't used the word too much here, Christian, because we have had to come up to Acts chapter 11 to get there. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 uh, talks about Barnabas going to find uh, Saul and Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's interesting. They weren't called Christians in Jerusalem. They were called Christians first in the city of Antioch, which was somewhat north and west of Jerusalem, uh, often uh, thought to be this term a derisive term, a derogatory term, ones that belong to Christ, you Christ followers. And yes, we are guilty as charged. We are Christ followers. But today it's been lost on, on some in the broader Uh, evangelical movement that that idea is important. Yes, we are Christ followers. Disciples are known as Christians. Every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Make sure you get that in your mind because there are some that tackle that idea today as if it's unbiblical. It's very biblical. It's straightforward, straight-up scripture. 
Every Christian is a disciple. Every disciple of Christ, true disciple of Jesus, is a Christian. Number 24 on my list, if you're following along, disciples are concerned for other Christians and will support them financially. Acts chapter 11 and verse number 29. It says, uh, well, let me back up to verse 27. Some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So the disciples, that's, that's good for them. They have advance warning of these things <laughs> sometimes. Uh, we don't have that today, of course. And uh, each, according to his ability, the disciples determined to send relief to the brothers dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So disciples were concerned for others and would support them financially. Uh, have you ever been involved in that kind of a project? We have as a church from time to time. We do every time we send money to missionaries for support, but not exactly in the same manner. Uh, there have been a time or two, or well, actually more now, I'm, I'm thinking about different examples of benevolent help uh, or um, larger gifts that we've given to uh, people who have had need or churches, another church. Um, and so that's a great privilege it turns out we haven't had the occasion to do that much lately. And I think part of it is that we have overall in our circle of knowledge, we have, at least nearby, churches that are fairly prosperous, okay churches. I wonder, though, if we were to broaden our horizon a little bit and think, I'm just thinking now about how, how could we help some of these churches that are so far away. And, you know, it burdens you sometimes, but then you have the fear of, you know, well, how is that actually, you know, if we send help to some of these churches, how are we going to get it there? How's it going to go there without being, you know, wasted or stolen or, you know, not get to its proper destination? It's a hard, a hard thing for me to process, frankly, to think about. And, uh, and then, you know, some that have real needs. I mean, you can't just fly over to Ukraine and, and help some people, you know, it's just not feasible, or Myanmar, or other places. So what do you do? That's hard. Our brothers and sisters suffering. Acts 13, then, as we leave that one behind for now, trying not to forget all these as we go by. And by the way, I'm trying to bring these to your attention in such a way that you think of yourself behind or underneath or in the word disciple every time I use it so that it's not like, oh yeah, those 12 disciples of Jesus or those 120 in the upper room or those 3,000. This is all great for them, you know, but it's so far away it has nothing to do with me. Uh-uh. This has everything to do with us. Uh, disciples, uh, Acts 13 and 52, Acts 13 and 52 is in the context of uh, persecution um, coming out at the disciples uh, from the, another city called Antioch when Paul was on his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. And they were expelled from the area. The people kicked them out. And it says in 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. 
And the disciples, listen to this, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Here are disciples who experience joy when persecuted. Is that strange? The disciples earlier in Acts uh, were, were honored to suffer persecution and shame for the name of Christ when they were beaten for him, Acts chapter 5, I believe you'll find there, when Peter boldly says, you know, we, we cannot but obey God. What are we going to do, obey man instead of God when man is telling us to keep quiet and God is telling us to speak the words of this life? So they experience joy at the notion of persecution. I suspect that myself, perhaps you, have a little bit of growing to do before we would be super happy about persecution for the name of Christ, that deep-seated joy. Acts 14 now, Paul continues on his missionary journey, and in Acts 14, verse 21, it says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, so they've gone to Derby. They've made many disciples there. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So actually we have several points here. The, the purpose of missions is to make disciples. Paul is doing his great commission work as a missionary, and he is going around making disciples and then going and strengthening the souls of those disciples. So the purpose of missions, we already knew from Matthew 28, but just to review, Paul is doing exactly what Jesus said that we must do. Nothing different or new there. Uh, Disciples also uh, indicated here um, have to enter the kingdom through many tribulations. We can take from that several ideas. Number one, we're not in the kingdom yet. We're going to enter it. Number two, We have to enter it through tribulations. In other words, it's not going to be easy, this life that God has assigned us. And uh, and also, thirdly, it requires us to be strengthened. Uh, Paul goes and strengthens the disciples. Sometimes you get a little weak. You know what I mean? Weak, not physically, but weak spiritually. And you need a little boost, a little booster, (laughs) a little help. Uh, and so Paul goes to strengthen the disciples and continue in the faith. We need that exhortation to continue in the faith. Well, I'm getting a little off my outline now. But uh, number 27 on my list of, of characteristics of disciples, it says, when they had come, verse 27, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So I take this uh, to indicate there's some level of hospitality that's happening between the disciples and one another. So disciples offer hospitality uh, to one another. They also have a particular doctrinal bent, disciples of Christ do, Acts 15.10. The disciples said, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So in addition to the doctrinal, or sorry, the practical aspects of like offering hospitality and experiencing joy when they're persecuted, the disciples also held to this 
doctrine that you know you cannot make new disciples follow this old law. We couldn't even keep it. They're not going to be able to keep it. So we don't put a yoke on the neck of the new disciples, which we were not able to bear. Our fathers were not able to bear. We must leave them loose of that yoke. That is the the character of the law as a weight. The, lo- the yoke of the Lord is light, remember, and easy. His burden is is simple to carry. Um, it's not like this heavy weight of the law where you have to do this and do that. You know, the law is all about do and live. What is the grace gospel about? Believe and live. You know, trust God and live, not do and live. All right, another characteristic of disciples. Uh, Acts 18.27 Asking yourself as we go through these, does this describe me? Does this describe who I am like, what I am like? Acts 18, 27. When he desired, this is Apollos now, when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brothers wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. What am I going to draw from this? Well, the brothers wrote to the disciples, and brothers are disciples, okay? So... Again, Christians are disciples, brothers are disciples, and brothers and Christians are all connected together. Two words for the same, or three words for the same group of people. Uh, Disciple and believer are two words also for the same person. Two more in this list, and then I've got a whole additional list that's going to be a little bit different in character. Uh, Disciples help other disciples to be wise about their behavior. Oh, where do I find that? Well, in Acts chapter 19, I hope you're familiar with the narrative here. There is a riot that breaks out in the city of Ephesus. And the Bible tells us that Paul is going to go, he's intending to go into this theater like uh, this, what do you want to say, stadium like atmosphere, and go in there and, you know, talk these people off the ledge. I mean, they're screaming, great as Diana of the Ephesians, for two hours straight. They're just, they're, they're insane, just insane. And so he, it says in verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Smart idea. Very good wisdom there. They helped Paul to be wise about his behavior. Similar thing in Acts 21.4, although... It's the, diff- the outcome is a little bit different. In Acts 21.4, uh, Paul is journeying toward Jerusalem, and, and verse 4 says, Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because they knew that he was going to be captured by the Jews and turned over to the Romans, and it was going to be a, a lengthy and unpleasant situation. Um, I suppose... Paul had to know that it was God's express will for him to go through that, for him to press on anyway, despite the, can I say, the advice of his disciple friends. Uh, I probably would have been inclined to listen to them (laughs) and not go to Jerusalem, uh, being that I'd rather not have to go to prison. So, you know, that's what Paul... uh, 
Paul had the, they had to deal with, and he wouldn't end up listening to them. He said, I'm ready to, to, bound and, to be bound and die for Jesus at Jerusalem. So they had to kind of rest on, well, God's will be done. That's just what is going to be. Acts 20, verse uh, 1 here also. It says, after the uproar had ceased, this is the uh, riot in Ephesus, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. I just drew from this that disciples naturally greet one another when they come and when they go. Uh, It's a kind of a, it's actually really a human kind of thing, but certainly a disciple kind of thing. When people love one another and are concerned for one another, we greet one another uh, at the uh, at the door, say, you know, after church or uh, after we have some time of fellowship and so on. Uh, it's very concerning when somebody kind of sneaks in to the church and sneaks out of the church. Uh, some of you have been in ministry probably know of situations like that, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't see, I didn't get to greet so and so today," and uh, that happens for weeks on end. You begin to wonder what's going on, you know, why is somebody upset or what's going on. But All right, so that covers 31 characteristics of disciples. Are you like that? But then there are also a whole bunch of characteristics that as I went through the text, I found that disciples don't always have it all together. They don't always have it all together. So as we think through these truths, you know, again, do not think of the 12. I want you to think of yourself. Our focus here is on application to our own lives. So we go back then, and I kind of go back over the same territory in the Gospels, but not the same verses by any stretch because there are so many. And I'll give you this one here to start us off, Matthew 14 and verse number 15. Uh, It says, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages to buy themselves some food. And then in verse 31, it says, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of what? Little faith. So we have a situation where the Lord is putting the disciples into a test and he is saying to them, look, give them something to eat. They say, no, we, we can't do that. We have to send them away to buy food. And so my point here is to say that the disciple of the Lord has faith in the Lord, but it's not perfectly strong faith. So I want to kind of put a fence or guardrail around what I've said before. You could easily get the impression, although you shouldn't if you listen to our whole series so far, you could get the impression that, I'm saying, well, you know, disciples have to be these kind of perfect model people that, you know, everything goes right and they're just right on the money and they do all these wonderful things and full of good works and everything like that. I, I said earlier, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. We're talking about tendency. We're talking about general nature, habit or pattern of life, not perfect uh, conformity to Uh, everything that you know that you should be doing because we're not done yet. We're under construction. And so disciples have shortcomings and they have challenges. And this is one of them. We have faith, but not perfectly strong faith. We also have other problems. Matthew 16, 5. 
When the disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Oh, not quite. What's the principle here that I'm drawing? Is It is this, that sometimes the disciple of the Lord is what I call a bit slow on the uptake. You know what that phrase means? Uh, you know, he's not picking up what the Lord is putting on the table. He's not getting it. It's a little bit like awkward that he's kind of clueless. Have you ever had a situation like that when you're in, in any kind of situation and somebody says, you know, uh, you know, this thing is, it's on your left side and you're reaching over to your right side. And you're like, no, your other left. And you're like, oh, I forgot I got all mixed up, you know. Or I didn't, you know, I can't see something that's right in front of me. Or I fumble around and because I, I can't do this thing that somebody's trying to show me how to do. You know what I'm saying? And you kind of feel like a fool. Yes, that's happened to you before. It's happened to me before. In, in our spiritual life, we can kind of go for a while and be a little bit slow on, you know, to, uh, to grok something is another phrase that people use to really understand it. And later on, you look at it and say, oh boy, I was slow. I was slow. And the disciples are a little bit slow sometimes. They think the Lord is talking about literal bread when he's trying to teach them a truth about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they have bad, bad, bad doctrine. And they are supposed to beware of that doctrine. Other times, the disciples grasp what the Lord teaches about something, but then takes it a little bit too far. You know, sometimes they're slow to get it. Other times, they kind of think they get it, and, uh, and then they take the truth too far. So in Matthew 19, the uh, question comes up about divorce and you know, can, it's, is it okay for somebody to divorce somebody else under what circumstances? And they go through all this, and the Lord gives a very, a very strict answer, frankly, uh, much more strict than what they thought based on the teaching that the Pharisees had given them. And he says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is, who is divorced commits adultery. So the disciples get that, but then they say, well, such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They like, you know, they go from the position of, you know, divorce has been taught to us to be kind of lax, you know, lackadaisical, and they swing all the way over to the other side and they say, well, forget the whole idea of marriage. It's ridiculous. It's never going to work. Um, so sometimes we go a little bit too far and what the Lord has taught us. So shortcomings of disciples. I, I wrote down another one here. Let me see what it is related to this. It is in uh, Mark 10. Oh, yeah, Mark 10:26. This is kind of a similar idea. The Lord is uh, speaking to the rich young ruler, and he finishes that, and then he looks at his disciple and, disciples and says, how hard is it for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished and said among themselves, here it is, who then can be saved? Like, again, you know, they go all the way over to this extreme and they say, well, who can be saved? I mean, it's impossible. So the Lord kind of brings them back a little bit and says, well, with men it's impossible, but with God, 
you know, this is indeed possible. So the disciples took the truth a little bit too far. Uh, let me go back to Matthew 19 and verse uh, 13. And this happens a number of times in the, in the uh, accounts of the Gospels about the disciples. It says in Matthew 19, 13, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples did what? No, they welcomed them kindly. No, they rebuked them. So sometimes disciples do wrong things because they do not really understand the ways of God. Have you ever done that? You do something you think is right, but then you realize later that was dumb. Yeah, we're like that, aren't we? Other times, the disciples' amazement at the work of the Lord demonstrates a bit of a lack of faith. Uh, Matthew 21 and verse number 20. They go into Jerusalem. The Lord curses the fig tree, and, and straight away the fig tree withers. And they say, how, how did that happen? How did that happen? You know, do we, in, in our little faith, do we expect the Lord to be weak and not to be able to do stuff for us? Or do we have a strong faith that helps us to expect the Lord to be able to do great things in our ministries and in our lives? Yet other times, disciples go astray when they are impressed by things that are not really that important. Let me give you an example. Uh, at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, the Lord is coming out of Jerusalem and the disciples are going with him and they, they sit there with the Lord and they say, Lord, look at these marvelous, remember what they said? These marvelous buildings. And the Lord said, I tell you the truth. Not one stone will remain upon another when God is, I'm paraphrasing, done judging this place. They're looking at the buildings. You know, have you ever done that before in life? You, you look at kind of the, you know, you look at the furniture. You're not looking at the bigger picture. You're, you're focused on things that really aren't that important, that maybe by and by in your more mature years or imagine yourself as, as a 70, 80, 85-year-old and you're you know, almost ready to enter into heaven and you look back in your life and you say, boy, there were a lot of things that were unnecessary, unimportant. I was looking at the buildings. I was looking at these great stones stacked upon one another to make these edifices and, and the Lord is concerned about saving souls so they don't go to hell. We kind of get sidetracked sometimes, don't we? We're impressed by things that are not that important. Sometimes we, as disciples, weigh actions incorrectly. For example, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, Mary did something with a bottle of ointment. Remember that story? And some of the disciples, including, of course, Judas, but others, thought the use of the expensive ointment was a waste. It should have been sold, they said, and helped the poor, but actually it was an extravagant expression of worship toward Christ. And so they looked at the situation with certain value in mind, and they said, well, that should have been used to do that. 
And Mary understood that, no, actually, it should have been used to do this other thing, to honor the Lord before his burial, to perfume him, to mark him, to honor and worship him. So it was not wasteful at all. But you see the the kind of thinking, the priority structure of the disciples at the time was wrong. They thought one thing, but that was the wrong thing to be thinking. Sometimes the disciples make extraordinary or enthusiastic claims that they're not able to follow up on. Matthew 26, verse 34 is an example of this weakness of our following the Lord. 26.34 says, Jesus speaking, Assuredly, I say to you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So you see, sometimes disciples make outlandish claims or enthusiastic uh, pronouncements that they cannot follow up on. Have you ever done that before? I'm going to do this for the Lord. And by, you know, a day or two later, it's like fizzle, fizzle, fizzle. (laughs) Because it hasn't hasn't worked yet. You know, I'm going to make this new resolution. Do something January 1st and every day this year. And you find out it's not so easy. Yeah, sometimes we make enthusiastic claims. Sometimes we can't complete the tasks that the Lord gives to us. The Lord goes to Gethsemane, says to the disciples, wait here while I go yonder and pray. And he comes back and what does he do? And he tells them, pray lest you enter into temptation. When he goes, he comes back, what does he find them doing? They've fallen asleep. They haven't finished the task that he gave to them. So sometimes we fail to carry out the tasks that the Lord gives to us. Other times, like Peter, we temporarily deny the Lord. You know that story very well. Sometimes we do. It's not the lifelong habit or pattern of a true disciple, but in fact, in this in fact, you know, we know Peter went out and wept bitterly and he was restored in John chapter 21. Uh, but he did deny the Lord, and sometimes that does happen. Disciples do that. Other times, um, disciples are slow to believe, slow to believe. Matthew 28, verse number 6. We're here in Matthew 28, 6 at the tomb of the Lord. And the angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Um, And go quickly and tell his disciples. And so they went out and told the disciples. And uh, what happened, as you know from elsewhere in the Gospels, when they told the disciples? Did they believe them? thought they were telling him idle tales. Slow to believe. Even though the Lord had said, I'm going to rise again, and they had arranged to meet in Galilee. That's strange to think about, isn't it? (laughs) I'm going to meet you, meet in Galilee after I die, after I rise again from the dead. Well, they met there afterwards, but they were slow. Even even seeing him, they're like, you know, kind of like, what am I seeing here? This is crazy. They were slow to, slow to believe. Um, 
Sometimes disciples have to endure lies about themselves. Matthew 27 and verse 64. Let's see what that verse says. Uh, Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And so the last deception will be worse than the first. Look, the only deceivers in that story are the Pharisees, not the disciples. But they had to endure being called liars, deceivers, because the, you know, the cover story of the, uh, uh, the party line was they, they were the, you know, they were the liars, they were the deceivers, the ones who were making this deception even worse. Matthew twenty-eight eight. There's another one. Now this is maybe not a. Sh- this is kind of a shortcoming, I suppose. It says in Matthew 28, 8, So they, the disciples, went out quickly from the tomb, these ladies, and they went with fear and great joy. Now, can you just imagine for a moment what it must be like to have fear and joy at the same time? Process that, those two emotions next to each other. How do you have that? How do you have... It's hard to explain. How do you have at the funeral of a, of a believer joy and grief at the same time? You have a kind of joy, but you have a kind of grief. And, you know, might seesaw back and forth a little bit in your feelings. How, how do you process that? So sometimes we have a mix of emotions like fear and joy. And some of those emotions, I would dare say, we shouldn't have. Sometimes when we have a mixture of emotions, we should be more mature and, and have a more unalloyed kind of emotional response to the things that the Lord has done, but we're, we're imperfect disciples, aren't we? Sometimes the Lord may require us to do hard ministry. Uh, Acts chapter 9, he tells Ananias, I want you to go and do what? Go talk to Saul the guy that's coming to your city to kill Christians. You know, go deal with him. And so sometimes the Lord does have hard ministry for us. Uh, you've probably read or, or seen videos of inspiring stories of people feel, feel called by God to go to a very difficult field, a, a difficult inner city ministry, a difficult mission field out overseas. And it's, it is inspiring what they are doing, even though it's a hard, hard ministry. Other times in those kind of situations, disciples are asked to help other disciples escape from persecution. Paul had to be let down in a basket through a window. Do you think that was considered legal by the king of Damascus in those days? No. In other words, they had to do an illegal activity to help Paul escape. Um, Just like, you know, we might say those who uh, managed homes or owned homes on the Underground Railroad doing what was at one time, uh, because of the Fugitive Slave Act, an illegal act in order to save the soul of some person, some slave who was running away from their masters in the South. Yeah, that's, sometimes that's very difficult. Other times, disciples are, are fearful. Um, Acts chapter 9 and verse... Oh, yeah, I think I remember this one. Let's see, I... I don't have all these memorized. Um, 
Acts chapter 9. I'm not asking you to either, but just to let this sink in. What are kind of characteristics of disciples and some of those shortcomings that they have? Acts 9.26, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So sometimes disciples are fearful. Other times they need strength and encouragement. I already alluded to that in Acts 14 today in our message tonight. Sometimes disciples are uninformed. I had this uh, Naomi in my notes already from several weeks ago, and then you mentioned this uh, in Acts 19 again. So Paul came to uh, Ephesus. He found certain disciples there, but they were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And they had kind of you know, gotten up to um, you know, John the Baptist's theology, but they hadn't advanced beyond that. They hadn't learned any more about what happened. They didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul comes and, and fills in the blanks for them and helps them to know the, the Lord Jesus and to be uh, fully involved in the gospel. So they believed in Christ. So sometimes disciples are misinformed. In fact, another example is Apollos. I don't know that I've put, I didn't put him in my notes here, but Apollos is one. He also was in a similar situation. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and they did what? They informed him a little more accurately about the way, the Christian faith, and uh, then he was a powerhouse after that. He really got up to speed quickly because he had been so well prepared and the Lord had had worked in him already up until that point. Um, Two more, I think, here. Sometimes disciples have to leave where they live and gather elsewhere instead of hanging out with stubborn people who refuse to believe. Now, in this case, it wasn't actually moving their domicile, but it was moving their meeting place out of the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus, close to it, because the people in the synagogue wouldn't have them anymore. They were hard-hearted against the gospel and didn't want to hear it. So Paul had to move the operation out and to another place instead of continuing to bang their head against the brick wall of unbelief and, and harshness. And then finally shortcomings and difficulties of disciples. Disciples are the target of the evil one who tries to draw them away from the truth of Christ. That's in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. This is in the context where Paul says, I know this after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so the evil one tries to draw believers away from the truth and from Christ. So you have a, you have a crosshairs uh, or a target on your back. Be aware that that's the case. Okay? You, are not, you, you are a marked person. And so be careful. That's one of the weaknesses or threats to the life of a disciple. So We've seen in my notes here, I had 31 characteristics of disciples, and I've just quickly with you run through 21 more characteristics of disciples in which, you know, we're not perfect. We'll look at Mark and Luke and also John's gospel for a few more the next time we gather, but we're going to stop there because I think I've already overloaded you all and myself, and um, we've had five messages this weekend, so time out. Okay, pause until next time. Okay, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be good disciples this week. If we are truly disciples, if not, I pray that you would convict us of the need to come to Christ and become his follower. We're commanded to repent and believe the gospel and to follow Christ lest we perish. And I pray that none here will perish eternally, but that all will come to knowledge of the truth. For those of us that have walked with you for some time, Lord, we probably have experienced some of the shortcomings, some of the embarrassments, some of the difficulties of a disciple. And I pray that you'd help us to grow through those to have more of the marks of a true follower of Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What brings us to the end of our Sunday ministry today? I hope to speak with you a little bit after service here, just chat and have some fellowship. But uh, enjoy your evenings and your weeks, okay? And we'll see hopefully a good number of you on Wednesday night for prayer. Enjoy uh, praying together with you, and uh, let's be in touch throughout the week, okay? Good night. God bless you.